my god, that is a That's car a from Toronto. Car. It's from Toronto. Ah, it's yeah. an old TTC car. Toronto Transit Commission. Cool. That's your streetcar. That is my streetcar. There you go. A little piece of home yeah. in San Francisco, which attests to the fact that, you know, come as you are. You are accepted. Look, I, yeah. I'm looking at my childhood right here in the castle. Well, I mean, it doesn't get much more charming than actually having functional streetcars. Welcome to About the Journey. I'm Onika Raymond, a travel journalist and member of Marriott Bonvoy. For each episode of season two, we're exploring what it means to travel better. And this week, we're doing it with the help of local celebrity Joshua Grinnell, an independent filmmaker and drag performer known as Peaches Christ. This week, San Francisco. If you could describe it in, let's say, three words, which ones would you choose? Okay, three words. Obviously, queer, creative, liberating. Hmm. I love that. Makes me want to come out here. (laughs) These three words ring true across San Francisco. And while we're spending time in the Castro today, Joshua, whose pronouns are he, him, encourages you to be a curious visitor. Explore the neighborhoods, go out to the avenues, go to like really far out by the beach and and have dinner at a Thai restaurant that only does crab. Like have a Burmese meal, you know, go see a movie at the Castro Theater, go see a show at the Oasis. Get off of the top 10 list. Exactly. And uh, dig a little bit deeper. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Castro Village, the name given for roughly 20 square blocks of quaint shops, vaguely Victorian structures cut into living quarters, and more than 15 gay bars, all nestled into a cozy hodgepodge of unplanned happiness at the foot of Twin Peaks. Um, And Onika's in the... The flannel? In the flannel, yes. We've made our way to the Castro. My producer, Gail, spots Joshua first and points him in my direction. For this lovely weather. Yeah, welcome to San Francisco Francisco. summer, yeah. (laughs) It's a sunny day in the Castro, but a ferocious wind sends every pride flag dancing outside the many restaurants and storefronts. Hi, how are you? Good you too. Onika, lovely. Nice to meet you, Onika. Thank you so much for agreeing to chat with us. Absolutely. Um, it's a little windy. It's a little windy. Yeah. You know, I've never heard anybody. Standing over six feet, Joshua is even taller than I expected. His faded black graphic tee, bleached hair, and jean jacket give off goth vibes. This is the actual camera shop. Well, it's not a camera shop anymore. We're in front of an unassuming storefront. It's the home of Queer AF, a queer art space dedicated to keeping LGBTQ plus artists in the Bay Area. But if you crane your neck up, you'll see an illustration of a man looking out a window. Back at the beginning of the gay civil rights movement, Harvey Milk owned this camera shop here. And so this actually became his campaign headquarters. As political parades go, it was a little unusual. Harvey Milk on his way to City Hall to be sworn in as a supervisor in San Francisco. At his side, his gay lover. San Francisco politics were turned upside down in 1977, the year Harvey Milk became California's first openly gay elected official. The Castro was a center for organizing and a safe haven for the gay community. It's been through a lot of changes since Joshua moved here from the AIDS crisis to the pandemic, but the heart of it remains. And so you moved here in 96. Yes, I moved here in 96. And um, in many, many ways, the neighborhood looks very similar. In a lot of ways, it looks very different. Yeah, I'm I'm curious, yeah, as to how it's changed. So when I moved here, this neighborhood was kind of a dark place. You saw a lot, a lot of sick people. There was a sadness to people because they'd been dealing with this 
tragedy for over a decade, you know? But once that cocktail started to come out and they got it into the hands of people and people started to live again, the later 90s really shifted. It was a really exciting time to be here and the neighborhood kind of came back to life. And what about the businesses? I mean, there's lots of stuff that's come and gone. At one point, right down here on the right, there was actually a museum dedicated to Barbara Streisand. Oh, wow. That was here when I moved. (laughs) (laughs) And the owner, obviously a huge Barbara Streisand fan, was so pissed off that she never came to visit that Mm. he basically closed it, saying... How dare she? Right. I mean, but would you... As we walk up Castro Street toward Orphanandes, Joshua points out establishments that have roots as deep as his own in San Francisco. Well, there's Harvey's, which sits on the corner, and that was new when I moved here. Badlands, which is next door, was actually already here. A lot of the bars are the same. Some institutions have come and gone due to the passing of time. Others, due to the changing economics of the city at large. The neighborhood is really different different beast back then, you know, more vibrant, you know, a lot, a lot of activity and uh, more retail storefronts, you know, it's kind of a roller coaster ride. Castro is really quiet after 11 o'clock, not like it used to be. I mean, that's the biggest change that's hit in all of the neighborhoods is, is how expensive it is. But it's also the same, you know, filled with good people trying to, trying to live their good lives. <laughs> So do you feel as though, even though the demographics of the neighborhood have changed, the economics of the neighborhood, some of the um, iconic businesses have gone, do you still feel as though there's a sense of community? I don't necessarily think it's uh, lessened. I think it depends on when you're here and what's happening. I see. That that was my bedroom window. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah, so for example, when the George Floyd murder happened, Mm -hmm. this was ground zero for gathering mm. and the queer community just came out en masse immediately. I, I love that. The community is still very strong mm. here. Case in point, when we arrive at Orphan Andes, the owner Bill Pung is quick to remember Joshua. Hey, Joshua. hi, how are you? I haven't seen you in a while. Yeah, yeah. How are things? Yeah, good, good. We're hanging in there. Good. Yeah. Well, you need to do a documentary about Orphan Andes. Always the filmmaker, talking with Bill gets Joshua's wheels turning about the diner, a Castro institution. Bill and his business partner slash husband, Dennis Zebel, have served up French toast and fries to night owls since the year Harvey Milk was elected supervisor. Today, it's bustling thanks to pride. We step inside and continue our conversation in a window booth overlooking 17th Street. Can you tell us a little bit about the spot, why it's significant? Well, I personally love Orphan Andes. I love food. I love diner food. And I love queer culture. It's a great place. I mean, it's so San Franciscan. It's so unique. You can get a cheeseburger here with a slab of Philadelphia cream cheese on it and a slice of pineapple, you know, and it's good. Right, right. Very, very, very nice. And of course, we talk about all of the fun times that you've had here, all the memories that you've had in the neighborhood at large. I mean, we're in the Castro. You know, when we talk about queer rights and when we talk about this area, obviously has a lot of historical significance. I look at some of the iconic figures that are constantly mentioned, you know, milk, for example, Mm -hmm. and it feels as though the community and the movement at large is very centered around white, cis, you know, gay men, Mm -hmm. right? Do you feel as though the 
community has become more inclusive? Do you feel as though more work needs to be done in order to be more inclusive? Uh, I think it depends on what perspective you're really looking at. There has been this acceptance in San Francisco that should be celebrated, but the Castro specifically has historically been white and male, and that is very true. The city in general has a wider diversity around queer expression. So I think it's, it, it is both, actually. And the Castro, um, in many ways, was very much called out by a genius black gay filmmaker um, in the 80s. His name is Marlon Riggs. Marlon Riggs lived in the Castro and made a movie called Tongues Untied. And that movie addresses exactly what you're talking about. And it's his experience being in, in, I forget how he says it, but kind of a sea of whiteness, you know. And I think a lot of white people had to be told, like, look around. You've got privilege. You're being exclusive. There's elitism here. There's, you know, part of the privilege is not knowing you have it. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, he was really instrumental in shifting things. And what I've seen over the years, honestly, because I lived in this neighborhood, is that there has been a change and there has been some reluctance to embrace that change. I think so often we have blind spots, Mm -hmm. right, that are unintentional, but they are indeed blind spots. And so it's important for us to recognize them and move on and think about how we can rectify and how we can uh, adjust and make a, a really positive shift. When we were walking up Castro Street earlier, Joshua and I stumbled on a plaque in the sidewalk memorializing a local legend. So we are actually on the Rainbow Honor Walk, and it kind of resembles, I guess, the uh, Hollywood Walk of Fame. Yeah, it does. And so we have like these panels, and they're honoring notable figures in the uh, LGBTQ plus community, and uh, Sylvester is one of them. Yeah, so Sylvester was the disco singer who often performed in drag and was a member of the Coquettes in the late 60s. 1969, a hippie drag commune did shows at the Palace Theater in North Beach, which is really where I got the inspiration to do my shows. They were in movie theaters, they were at midnight, and Sylvester was one of their regular performers. Uh, Sylvester, of course, ended up becoming a huge breakout star, you know, appearing on all the big TV shows. This is pre-RuPaul. This was a big deal because he would perform in drag, like on The Tonight Show, appearing with Joan Rivers, you know, and his song Mighty Real is still played, you know, everywhere. So crossing into the mainstream. Tell me more, more about you. So where did you grow up? I was born in D.C. and I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. Um where I was a kid who went to Catholic school and, you know, it was very boring and very, how should I say this, preppy? And I was none of those things. I wanted to live in the city. I was a weirdo. I loved horror movies. I was a goth kid. I was, you know, I was always attracted to the other underdogs. Those were my friends. So I just kind of always knew that I had to get the hell out of Maryland. And Joshua did just that. He found his people and realized his creative potential in San Francisco. You might have spotted his 2010 cult film starring Natasha Leone, All About Evil. But what he's best known for is his drag persona, Peaches Christ. She's a horror-loving queen who routinely sells out all 1,407 seats at the Castro Theater for an event called Midnight Mass. I basically went to um, the company here, Landmark Theaters, and said I want to do a midnight movie series with my drag queen friends and hosted his peaches. And I created a different show every week before these screenings. And 
that show evolved over the years. It got bigger and better, and we started selling out nights, and so the show could take the form of sketch comedy, it could take the form of a contest. Then we started inviting the actual celebrities from the movies, and I started to befriend the celebrities, and then, you know, by putting one foot in front of the other, it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and now it's a big movie celebration that takes the form of a giant stage show acted out by drag performers. Mm, held at the Castro Theater. Held at the Castro Theater and then beyond. Midnight Mass isn't the only drag show in town. Far from it. On any given night in the city, you have your choice of drag performances, be it brunch at El Toro or cabaret at the Oasis. They're even often at W San Francisco, my hotel. While modern day drag as we know it has its roots in Harlem, there's no denying San Francisco's influence on the culture and it on San Francisco's history. The city's first well-known drag queen is cited as Jose Julio Saria, who performed at a gay bar called Black Cat in the 1950s. He later became the first openly gay candidate for public office in the United States. His legacy as a gay Latino leader, activist, and drag queen helped pave the way for politicians and performers alike. Joshua sees a lot of hope in the changes that have sprung from the queer community over the years. I guess if I were in college today, I'd probably identify as non-binary because my expression in college, I would wear lipstick to class and barrettes and, you know, was much more of a, a gender androgynous presenting person. And then I discovered drag and I started to do drag. And having peaches was like this, this other creative outlet where I got to express this part of myself. It's not just a performance. Part of me is feminine. Part of me, I identified as a child as not being all male or a boy or a man, you know. So Peaches, for me, I'm not impersonating a woman. I'm actually impersonating a, an idea of myself <laughs> or what this this weird glamazon creature that was inside of me. So it's an expression. Yeah. You know what I find really interesting? I find it's almost like now that we have the vocabulary. Yeah people can, like, fully express themselves. Like, it almost not gives permission. I guess it, it gives a label or a name to to this thing that you knew about. But I, I feel like it's more prevalent now to be non-binary just because we have the language for yeah. it. <laughs> I mean, I've always right? been friends with and known people who are non-binary. We just didn't have the word for it because we're older. We didn't use they, them. And so it's interesting now that like a younger generation have kind of shifted. So it's like, this has always been here. It's always been part of us. But now I love what they're doing because what they're saying is we're going to destroy this. We're yes. just going to take it apart. Period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 We were talking a lot about the Castro as being like an epicenter or very important center for the LGBTQ plus community here in San Francisco. What are some other neighborhoods? Certainly what's called Soma, which is south of Market, is, is very important because that's really the uh, leather district. And, and historically now it's been recognized by the city as the leather cultural district. South of Market became where, you know, the Eagle and the powerhouse and these sort of I, I think of it as drag in a lot of ways, you know. But that's where the Folsom Street Fair happens, and it's the largest international kink and leather fair in the world. One other notable, I think very notable, piece of San Francisco history right now is that we now have the first ever transgender cultural district in the city, which my friend Honey Mahogany actually made happen. You know, here's a drag performer who went on RuPaul's Drag Race. This is so San Franciscan. And instead of, like, becoming 
the queen that tours the world and does these big epic events. And, you know, of course she did some of that and she's been in my shows. But Honey said, well, before I went on RuPaul's Drag Race, I, you know, I was a social worker. And I want to use my platform to make a difference. And so now Honey Mahogany is literally running for supervisor. She just announced her campaign as Honey Mahogany, an out trans-identified drag performer. But she was the person who basically got it pushed through City Hall to designate a part of the Tenderloin as the transgender cultural district because it's where the Compton Cafeteria riots happened and it really changed things in San Francisco. I want to take a moment to share a bit of this history because I knew nothing about the Compton's Cafeteria Riot before sitting down with Joshua. And this is all too often the case when it comes to the work of transgender people, particularly transgender people of color. It was an August evening in 1966, three years before the Stonewall Riots in New York. That night, transgender women, drag queens, and other members of the queer community rose up against years of police brutality in the Tenderloin. Despite the progress it sparked, the riot went unreported in the news. And as time went on, the dominant narrative in the LGBTQ movement favored that of the cis gay man. But in 2017, three Black trans women founded the Transgender District, recognizing the Tenderloin as a documented home for transgender folks since the 1920s. It's the first legally recognized cultural district of its kind and helps to rewrite the queer community's fight for equity. Films can also play a powerful role in telling honest, varied stories of what it means to be queer. And San Francisco is home to a hundred-year-old theater that has been the launchpad for many of these films. The Castro Movie Theater, which is like the centerpiece business of the neighborhood, is the cultural epicenter of this neighborhood, really represents something for the queer community around the world. Part of it is because queer film festivals have been uh, a real gathering place for our community because we were not seeing ourselves represented in other movie theaters and, you know, on, on television and our stories weren't being told or if they were being told, you know, we were presented as people to be afraid of. So, you know, the, the Frameline Film Festival, which started at the Castro Theater decades ago, ended up becoming this incredible, uplifting, empowering festival uh, where so many of us just gathered to see our stories told. But beyond that, the Castro Theater was a repertory theater for many years. And so it had professional film programmers who were programming movies for this community. So these repertory films, as a young queer person moving to San Francisco, finding out from an older queer person, oh, they're screening Anti-Mame? You need to go see Anti-Mame. And I remember discovering Cheryl Dunye, who's a black lesbian filmmaker who made a movie called The Watermelon Woman. Cheryl and I are friends to this day, but The Watermelon Woman was programmed at the Castro Theater for like two weeks. Nowhere else. I mean, I'm sure she had a festival run, but it wasn't distributed. So it was a place for, for our community to gather. You know, it was kind of like our church. Right. I mean, we always talk about movements. And I mean, movements spring forth from exclusion, from disenfranchisement. They're seeking an arena in which their needs are being met, in which they are being seen and heard and having to basically rally and gather and provide a safe space for your needs, interests, creative pursuits, or what have you, to be um, exalted and uplifted. 
For the last 46 years, the queer community has gathered at the Castro Theater for Frameline's International LGBTQ Plus Film Festival. It's the largest and longest-running queer film event in the world, and filmmakers and moviegoers alike have a special affection for it. One, two, one, two, testing, testing. Testing, I think it's just an opportunity for all the people who are queer to finally see them themselves on the big screen, and it's, it's just an opportunity to finally see yourself in real life, I guess. Do you feel like you're, you know, sitting with your biggest group of friends, even though you may not know anyone there or not? <laughs> I think the quality, the quantity, and the diversity of what they offer is pretty special. I'm excited about hearing laughter, community laughter, you know, I'm excited for seeing um, queerness on screen, big, large. It's been a while, you know. All right, you mentioned Frameline. Tell us, tell us more about it. Well, the Frameline Film Festival is, you know, in my mind, the best film festival in the world, and I've been lucky enough as a filmmaker to uh, go to many, many, many festivals, including Sundance, including Cannes, including Toronto, like the big ones, but nothing to me compares to the Frameline Film Festival. And that, in large part, is due to the spiritual connection that a community experiences watching films with like-minded community members that empower us that tell our stories and doing it in a place that has historical significance, you know, 1,400 queer people. I remember one of my favorite screenings. Joshua recounts being at Frameline the day California Prop 8, a state amendment banning same-sex marriage, was overturned. Happening right now, celebrations are still underway in San Francisco's Castro District tonight. And out here live this evening, it is a celebration. It is a party. So when I walked out of the theater, there was a massive swelling of like the streets just filled up. You know, that kind of experience, I've never had that at any other festival. Where the movie you see on screen is happening outside the doors. You know what I mean? Like the next chapter to that film is what was happening in the streets. Wow, so, so it's yeah. clearly, clearly Frameline is very significant yes. to the community. So tell me, what are you looking forward to? tonight at the screening? Just being at the Castro Theater with that audience and, and sort of seeing, you know, Frameline start back up again and that feeling of, of watching a movie in a movie theater with, with a bunch of people, you know, and because it's this film festival that I love so much, there's a specific feeling to it that it's hard to describe. I guess it all comes back to the community at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, I created a show called Midnight Mass, right? I'm Peaches Christ. So I know it sounds tongue-in-cheek, but I actually really mean that for me there is a spiritual component there is a sense of fellowship around being with a group of people um, in a movie theater and celebrating ourselves together and you know I was raised a certain way and and that community said actually no you're not welcome here and you're a sinner and so uh, this is where I find community I love that well I guess we could head over there we step out of the diner and into the windy evening, and the line for opening night of Frameline snakes its way up Castro Street and around the corner. It's the San Francisco premiere of the series reboot of A League of Their Own. Friends greet each other, a buzz about the screening, and I'm excited too. It's a queerer, more diverse take on the beloved classic, and I'm here for it. It was so exciting to be back in the 
Theater for the opening night of Frameline. Just a really lovely, lovely night. So the organ player always ends with the San Francisco song, but then tonight they added Take Me Out to the Ballpark. Catching up with Joshua after the show, he echoes my sentiments and shares how the breakout star of the night wasn't on the screen, but sitting right in the audience. My favorite part of the evening was the 95-year-old former professional baseball player who's actually one of the women that A League of Their Own is based on, and the fact that she just came out of the closet at 95 years old for the world at the Frameline Film Festival. Like, those are the moments that make this magic. That's it for this season of About the Journey. Thank you to our San Francisco guest, Joshua Grinnell. And thanks to you all for coming along with me as we learn together what it means to travel better. If you missed any episodes, they're right here in your feed to catch up on. About the Journey is produced by Marriott Bonvoy Traveler, At Will Media, and me, Onika Raymond. Our Marriott producers are Robin Benefield and Jess Moss. Our At Will Media producers are Kate Walsh, Christy Westgard, Gail Straub, and Tina Turner. Editing by Greg Devins II and Andrew Holzberger. Follow along with Joshua on Instagram at The Peaches Christ and learn more about Frameline by visiting frameline.org. You can learn more about visiting San Francisco and how to travel more meaningfully from Marriott Bonvoy Traveler at traveler.marriott.com. And if you like this episode of About the Journey, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Onika Raymond, and I'll see you next season. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Women Who Travel is a transported podcast for anyone curious about the world. We talk to adventurers and athletes. I've raced the God's Own Adventure Race, which is on the South Island and goes through the mountains down in the Southern Alps on New Zealand. That was eight days spent out in the wilderness. And chefs. Iranian food is home, it's family, it's love. And we share dispatches from our listeners. Ireland is full of these, I will call them ghosts of the past. From stampeding elephants to training sled dogs. We hear it all. The dogs will curl right up with you and it can be kind of cozy waiting things out. New episodes of Women Who Travel publish every Thursday. Join us wherever you listen.